Good morning, Deep Run family. This morning we will be reading from Psalm 60 in the English Standard Version. Feel free to follow along with me. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that our hearts, meditations, and the words of my mouth would glorify you today in the name of our Savior, our rock and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you know, as many of you know, uh, we, we pause every summer and we meditate on the Psalms because the, t- the Psalms teach us how to meditate and they teach us how to pray. Now here's something I don't often say, but the Psalms even teach us wisdom. And that's what we're gonna talk about today, wisdom. This is an awkward Psalm, number 60. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Psalm challenges our understanding of faith. The psalm challenges our understanding of the nature nature of faith. For instance, uh, David begins in verse one by declaring, oh God, you have rejected us. David's military successes brought Israel to a new height of stability and peace that they had never achieved before, ever since they came into the land hundreds of years earlier. Uh, David fully conquers the land in fulfillment of God's promises to Moses and Joshua and the people of Israel who had left Egypt as slaves. David, in his military success, accomplishes uh, the final victories, giving the people at last peace and stability. But even in that victory, even in David's amazing military career as, as a as a a leading officer, and then as a king, uh, there were setbacks. Of course, there were minor defeats, and, and one is mentioned here in this psalm. This psalm pictures uh, a brief defeat uh, that deeply discouraged David. For instance, he says, you, you have rejected us, you have broken our defenses. Now, here's where it gets awkward. David says, why? Because God's angry with him. You've rejected us, you've broken our defenses, you have been angry. He knows that God has caused this setback. He's staring at defeat or he's been told, he's been reported to about a defeat and he knows God has caused it, 
but he sings on. This is the awkward tension. He knows God's angry with them, and he continues to worship God. And that makes no sense to the American mindset. That makes absolutely no sense to our neighbors and our relatives and our coworkers. Why would you continue to worship God and run to him when you know that he's frustrated with you? 20 years ago or so, the, the early 2000s, the University of Notre Dame's National Study of Youth and Religion coined a term. Now It's 20 years old now, this term. Not quite 20 years old. Moralistic therapeutic deism. What researchers discovered by analyzing and interviewing the youth of America over a period of years, they discovered a, a, a so-called faith, a a belief system inherent in the thinking of young people in America, and they called it moralistic, moralistic therapeutic deism, and this is the basic sense of, of what this faith is. A general belief that God wants us to be good, but that God wants us to feel good, and ultimately that he's very distant, like old deism. You know, God created the universe and then walked away from it, just kind of let it go, ticking without his help. Uh, so, so this is moralistic therapeutic deism, very common in the mindset of young people in our society. God wants you to be good, but God wants you to feel good, and he's gonna leave you alone. He's not gonna get involved, he's out of touch, he's gonna stay away from us. But be good, and feel good. That understanding of faith will fail you in distress, in any kind of serious distress, that system of belief will fail you. In your tragedy, in your adversity in life, and especially in your suffering, you will completely lose faith in a God that you believe wants you to feel good and be good, but is not involved in the world and in your life. But David attributed some distress to God's discipline. And so we're going to talk about wisdom and we're going to talk about discipline. Discipline from the Bible's perspective is God's loving correction of his children. And I think you're going to see in Psalm 60 that those who live by faith learn wisdom from God's discipline. Those who live by faith learn wisdom as a result of their distress and adversity and suffering. So we're gonna look at the necessity of discipline in our lives. And we're gonna look at wisdom, which is one of its fruits, and we're gonna look at salvation. You heard me say earlier uh, in, in, in prayer uh, that, that the scriptures make us wise to salvation. They help us understand what God is doing and what he expects of us. So today we're gonna to talk about the necessity of discipline and wisdom, and ultimately salvation, okay? So, the necessity of discipline was a major theme in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's everywhere. 
Corrective discipline is everywhere in the Old Testament, and I can't think of a better example of that than the book of Proverbs. So uh, uh, the teacher in Proverbs chapter three says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Okay, so... uh, At some historical point in Israel's history, the psalmist here in 60 interprets a military defeat as God's discipline upon Israel. For instance, in verse 3, we return to David's psalm. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that has made us stagger. So they're not drunk by drinking too much. That's not what, they're not enjoying, you know, the the wine harvest of a very good year. Uh, This is the wine of judgment. This is another theme in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. They are drinking the cup of God's wrath. Now, it's a temporary cup. It's not judgment in their case. It's corrective discipline. How do we know that corrective discipline is a good thing? How do we know discipline is good? Well, one way we know that it's good is we look at its fruits. We see its results. Again, Proverbs chapter 29. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And so we see some of the fruits of discipline are wisdom and rest and the delight of our hearts. Look, you know this is true of the way the world works. Anyone who has had any degree of success in school, or academics, uh, sports, athletics, music, dance, the arts, if, if you have had any measure of financial success, you know that discipline is essential. There has to be some level of, of controlled, sustained discomfort, even pain, so that flourishing can come, so that, that maturity and competency can come, right? Without, without sweaty, tiring practice, you're not going to get better at your game. So on a very simple human level, discipline is necessary for flourishing. Now what's so ironic and interesting is that our society asserts from a moral or ethical perspective that you can have more happiness with less discipline. But the Bible shows that that actually doesn't work. Again, Proverbs 29, where there is no vision, and I'm using the King James Version here because I love the way it, 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 it puts this. Where there is no vision or revelation, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. A child, in order to flourish, needs corrective discipline. A family, a church, in order to flourish, needs corrective discipline. Discipline, though, is not a one-way street. Discipline has to be received. It has to be absorbed. It it has to be uh, internalized by those receiving it and and they have to process it in order for that discipline to bear fruit. So wisdom is discipline's companion in the Bible. 
You have discipline, and then you have the fruit of wisdom. Now, in our society, and I've been thinking about it this week, our world has become information-based and self-expression-obsessed. Information-based and expression-obsessed. We are information-based because we put a ton of of weight on, on the benefits of science and what it can do for humanity and for our basic lives. Uh, We are expression obsessed because Americans put a ton of hope in in pleasure and entertainment and consumerism. Uh, Because we trust in science, information is our currency. The more information you have, the better your life will be. But because we hope in pleasure, self-expression is like an unalienable right to us. We believe it's our God-given right to express ourselves. The more a person can express themselves, the more human they are. The more they can become their true self. So information-based, expression-obsessed, but look, for, think, of just, think of just about the last 120 years. When you look at the creation of the atomic bomb and its proliferation worldwide, and when you take an issue like the opioid pandemic of the last 30 years, okay? In our own society, the opioid pandemic. Look at things like that, um, and when you think about information and you think about self-expression, what is lacking in all of this? Because we have more and more science and we have more information than we can ever process. So that it's almost like nobody is an expert in any field anymore because the volume of information increases and increases and increases at a rate that uh, the human brain uh, uh, cannot keep up with. And the amount of expression, self-expression, has has become so idolized uh, and so prized in our society that there seems to be no end to the limits of how an individual can express Themselves. What is lacking in all of this? Well, the, the Bible would say wisdom. You can have all the information you want. You can express yourself as often as you please. But if you lack wisdom, you will not mature. If you lack wisdom, you will not flourish. A Hebrew professor, Old Testament scholar of mine in seminary, uh, simply defined wisdom in the Bible as the ability to make the right choice. From God's perspective, biblical wisdom, the kind of wisdom that the Proverbs and the ancient writer says is more precious than gold or silver or precious jewels, is the ability to make the right choice, you see. With, without, without wisdom, you cannot interpret all the information. Without wisdom, You cannot make good choices with all that science offers to us. Without wisdom, you cannot temper self-expression. You cannot define and and, and moderate self-expression. Notice in the Psalms heading, this really long heading that gives you some of the historical details that you can find in other books of the Bible, in some of the historic books, 
But notice in the middle of all that stuff that was read and we just kind of don't think about, and that's fine. You don't have to pay very close attention to the headings. But notice in the middle of it, it says what? For instruction. Psalm 60 is not just a poet and a musician expressing himself. The best art teaches us to gain wisdom, does it not? The best art teaches us to gain wisdom from the human experience. And as an aside, if you select music for community group or worship service or anything, the best hymns and the best worship music do not just help Christians express themselves to God. The best music helps us express ourselves to God in worship and teaches us at the same time. That's balanced worship music, expression and teaching. And that's what we see David doing. This is for instruction. I am telling you God is angry with us and I am going to instruct us with this psalm. So here's one. Here's something learned. Here's a nugget of essential wisdom that you can learn today. Learn an essential lesson in wisdom right now and it's this. God's discipline does not outlast his mercy. Did you hear that? God's discipline does not outlast his mercy. As David has already told us in the 30th Psalm, his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. As human parents, we err to one side of that or the other. We're always angry with our kids or we're just trying to be their friends and we're way too loosey-goosey with them. God's anger is for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Knowing that, David, instead of quitting God in defeat, he doubles down on his faith. Do you see this? Look at verse four. He says, you have set up a banner for those who fear you. This means you know, a big flag on the battlefield so that everybody can retreat to that one person when the enemy is pressing in. He's saying this is what God's done for us. You've set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to you from the bow. And we go, wait, what? flee to God in battle, didn't he just say God's rejected them? He's rejected them and now they're fleeing to him. Why? What, what's with the awkwardness there? Well, think of a small child. You know, a kid, when a, when a, when a child is still very small, in, in a good, in a basic, you know, relatively healthy parenting dynamic, when a child is really small and trusting and they are corrected, or disciplined, have you noticed this? They will still run to the very adult who is disciplining them. In their tears and sadness of having to deal with the consequences of what they've done, they still run right into the parent's lap. <laughs> the source of their correction is also the source of their comfort. They'll go to nobody else. That's what David is doing here. This is a parent-child relationship between David, which means beloved, and his heavenly father, running to God in the midst of it. David allowed God's discipline to drive him toward God and not away from God. You see that? Because David understood God's discipline does not outlast his mercy. And this is why in Psalm 51, after David screwed up and committed every sin in the book on a national level, the first thing out of his mouth was, 
Be merciful to me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. As a matter of fact, God's discipline is mercy to us. It's not just that he, his discipline is a bad thing and his mercy is this wonderful thing. Even his discipline is a mercy to us. His discipline is wise parenting. The worst thing God could do is let us go undisciplined like spoiled children, right? How many spoiled children have ruined your trip to the mall or to an amusement park? How many spoiled children have ruined your family reunions and holiday dinners, right? God doesn't want his children to be so spoiled that they are a stench to society and the world. Did not Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world? How is it that we are salt and light? Because of God's corrective discipline. As Paul said to the Corinthians, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now listen, if the Bible is right about this, if the Bible is right about the, the relationship between corrective discipline and wisdom, then self-reliance has to be unwise, right? If the Bible is true and what we're learning in Psalm 60 is true, then relying on anybody else and anything else other than this God, that has to be unwise. Putting your hope in science, putting your hope in self-expression, putting your help in one another in the church, it has to be unwise if everything Psalm 60 says is true. Ask yourself today, ask yourself this week in prayer and in meditation, why can I not trust God? If you're not a Christian, if you're listening and you're, you're, you don't believe this stuff, or you're skeptical, you're, you're not sure, you're not a, a Christ follower, okay, ask yourself, why can I not trust this God at all? If you are a believer, ask yourself, why can I not trust God in this, with this one thing, this one person or this one relationship or this one weakness of mine, or, or this one particular need or fear that I have. Why can I not trust God with this? And then look at verse 11. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. That's the wisdom that David learned from adversity. This is what he is trying to teach Israel in the psalm, that Salvation in anything and anyone else is vain, empty, useless. I wonder if, if this line of thinking sounds familiar to anybody here. Because I say it with experience, from experience. Tell me if this line of thinking sounds familiar. God has let me down. I am really disappointed in God and we are not on speaking terms. My marriage is meh. My children have not turned out the way I hoped they would turn out. All I've invested in them, the money, the time, the effort, the lessons, they're not the people I hoped they would grow up 
to become. And this job, this job, I don't even know where to start. Does that sound familiar? Let me go further. I have basically been a good person. How can I trust in a God who will not let me be happy? I'm not a murderer. I'm not a third world dictator. I've basically been good. How can I trust a God who will not let me be happy? I guess I'll have to rely on someone else. I guess I'll have to put my trust in something else. Listen, the person who does not trust God has not truly known him. This is more than self-expression. This is more than information. The person who does not trust God has not truly known him. The God of the Bible is not a cosmic benefactor who wants you to be good and feel good at the same time, but will leave you alone and never get involved with you. Nothing good in this world works that way. You know that. Nothing healthy, nothing that flourishes in this world does so because the person overseeing it is not involved and just wants everybody to be generally good and generally happy. Nothing good works out that way. Why should we have different expectations in our relationship with our creator? Friend, maybe you have refused to learn wisdom from God's discipline. Maybe you have refused to learn wisdom through your adversity and your suffering. And this is why God's salvation is essential and necessary. This is why we preach God's salvation and sing about it every time we meet in worship and why your community groups are always going back to the basics. We're never gonna grow out of the basics of the necessity of God's salvation. And the necessity of God's salvation, why it's so important is because it guarantees wisdom. We struggle to find wisdom. It's like a precious pearl at the bottom of the ocean that no one can find, and when they find it, they rejoice. We rejoice in it because it guarantees wisdom. Listen to this. True faith, okay? The first step of true faith is acknowledging you can't trust yourself anymore. The first step of true faith is acknowledging that you cannot fully put your trust in anything else or anyone else. True saving faith first acknowledges what it said in verse 11. Vain is the salvation of man. You need saving. That's the first step of faith. I cannot save myself and no one and nothing else can. Self-expression cannot save me. Becoming the person I decide to invent cannot save me. And having all the information and all the benefits of modern technology and 21st century science cannot save me. I need God. We need God. We need saving, verse 5. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. He's saying this while he knows that God is angry with them. Give us salvation and answer us. Now, that's not sophisticated, is it? The people of our world does not think this simple answer of saving faith is informative. They don't believe it is expressive at all, and it certainly doesn't feel free. But I am telling you, it is the seed of wisdom. 
It is the essential kernel of wisdom out of which all true flourishing sprouts. True faith steps out of self-reliance into a reliance on God. And this is the amazing thing. The Bible refers to Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the wisdom of God. Did you know that? The New Testament describes Jesus, the human being, Jesus, as the wisdom of God. And Hebrews 5 tells us that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Did you hear that? Jesus sympathizes with our suffering and with our weakness. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and he was made perfect. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We could do a whole sermon series on on those two verses. But just for now, this is what he's saying. Though Jesus was the holy, wise God, as a human being incarnated, as a human being, he represented us in learning discipline. He was perfect. And yet as a son, he embraced for you and for me in our place all of God's corrective discipline that humanity deserved and that humanity needed. And he cried out to God in tears and with weeping. And God answered him, Hebrews tells us. He didn't answer him by saving him from the cross. He answered him by unleashing all of his wrath on his son. And he answered him by raising him from the dead. See, Jesus could have said, I've been a good boy. I've been the perfect child. Why is God not allowing me to be happy? The kingdom is mine. Jerusalem is what mine. Caesar's nothing compared to me. Why can't God let me be happy? Right? So if Jesus did not assume that that is how his father should have responded to his holy perfection, why should we assume that God should want us to be happy for living far less than a perfect life? No, what Jesus taught us through his suffering is that loving sacrifice brings salvation. Not information, not self-expression, but loving sacrifice brings forgiveness and peace and reconciliation with God. How do we gain Christ's wisdom, because that sounds almost impossible that somehow we were guaranteed wisdom by trusting in Jesus, but it's true. By trusting in him, by belonging to him alone and not giving anybody more authority, by giving nothing more authority and more love in our lives, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter two that we have the mind of Jesus. That is the Christian's way not allowing God's discipline to destroy your faith, but allowing his discipline to remake you. That's our way as Christ's disciples. Allowing his discipline not to destroy us, but to remake us. Those who live by faith learn wisdom from discipline. 
So remind yourself, and if you have to do it every day, do it every day. If you have to do it several times a day, tell yourself, God's discipline does not outlast his mercy. And the proof of that is an empty tomb and a risen Lord, right? Think about it. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then God's discipline would have been the last word. If we have a tomb with a body, if we simply have the crucifixion as the last event of Jesus' life, then God's discipline would have had the last word. But his discipline didn't have the last word. His mercy did. The resurrection proves that for all who trust Jesus, God's eternal mercy is our reward. So take your first steps away from self-reliance. You can do this. This is growing up with Jesus. Take your first steps away from self-reliance into saving faith. And if you're already a Christian, take those first steps away from self-reliance into what we call sanctification, being renewed by the transformation of your mind. Live by faith. Learn wisdom from your suffering. Let's pray. Father, as we transition to receiving the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would spiritually nourish us. Father, this journey is hard. There are so many voices. There are so many influences. There's so much information. Father, we are not wise enough. And we are not diligent enough to keep our eyes on Jesus. Father, we pray that through your word and now through your sacrament that we would see Jesus high and lifted up, that we would see he is the answer, that we'll never have enough information, we'll never need to express ourselves in such a way as to earn our own salvation or to trust in ourselves or humanity. Help us see now through his sacrificial death that Jesus Christ, that he alone is all we need. Thank you for the wisdom of God made flesh who died in our place and rose from the dead. Amen.